Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2013 AWP conference in Boston. The recording features Stephen Burt, Vivian Gornick, James Wood, Claire Cavanaugh, and Peril Segal. You will now hear Stephen Burt provide introductions. Thank you so much. What a privilege it is to be here at AWP uh, doing this uh, officially co-sponsored panel called What is Criticism with the National Book Critics Circle, uh, on whose board I have been proud to serve. And I think there are some other NBCC board members in the room, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the National Book Critics Circle is the organization that represents book critics and book reviewers uh, in the United States, and to some extent even abroad. Anyone who writes book reviews is welcome and encouraged to join. You can do that at bookcritics.org, uh, and it will take you to the membership sign-up page. If you do not yet write book reviews, or simply want to support the national and international conversation about how to read and what to read and why, you can become an associate member. Uh, doing either of those things will get you a certain number of discounts on events and literary and cultural journals that will be for your annual membership. If you are a student, uh, whether an undergraduate or an MFA student or something else, you can become a student member, which costs very, very little and brings with it all of the other National Book Critics Circle membership benefits. Uh, and we do a number of things. We do events in cities throughout the country that promote reading and promote criticism, and we give an annual set of awards, uh, which have been given, or almost given, in the sense that they were on the shortlist to all four of our distinguished panelists today, whom I will introduce as rapidly as I can without loss of focus, so that we can have as much of a conversation as possible. And toward the end, we will open it up to questions uh, and answers from our audience. Does anybody have a wristwatch? Can we put your wristwatch? Okay, uh, Vivian Gornick. Vivian Gornick not only has a wristwatch, <laughs> that's a watch. It's so that I don't speak for too long. All of you will be great. It's my question that will get too long. Uh, Vivian Gornick, in addition to owning a wristwatch, uh, is the author of many, uh, many distinguished, and at this point, I would say, uh, quite often, not only admired, but imitated books of literary criticism, cultural and political criticism, and memoir, uh, including The Men in My Life and The End of the Novel of Love, both of which were shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. Uh, other books uh, include a number of biographies, also a very recent book about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, is that right? And another one um, about Emma Goldman, right? Yeah, one doesn't have to imagine, one can read about it. Uh, and uh, Essays in Feminism, uh, and since the 1970s, many of us have looked to her as an exemplary maker of sentences, as well as uh, an example in how to combine cultural criticism, cultural analysis, and real literary reading for a more than academic audience. I remember my first encounter with the end of the novel of love, and I hope that book has continued to uh, affect me. And she also writes well about Randall Jarrell, among many other figures. Uh, Pearl Segal became, three years ago, three years, three years ago, the uh, youngest ever winner of the National Book Critics Circle's Balakian Award for Excellence in Book Reviewing. Uh, after some time at National Public Radio and Publishers Weekly, she is currently on the staff of the New York Times Book Review, and you can continue to read her own reviews at her own website, which is pearlsegal.com. Uh, including a, a terrific long piece on Zadie Smith that I was talking about yesterday, so I won't talk it up again. Uh, but read her work and read the work that she edits at the New York Times Book Review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, James Wood, whose books many of you may also know, was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist for The Irresponsible Self in 2004. Uh, his many uh, other books of literary criticism and fiction include The Broken Estate, Essays on Literature and Belief, the Book Against God, uh, How Fiction Works, and which many of you, I think, have not only read but memorized parts of it. It's been the subject of so many uh, debates recently, uh, which I'd be glad to hear or be part of, and most recently, the fun stuff. Um, and finally, uh, Claire Kavanaugh, one of the, the 
English-speaking world's most distinguished scholars and critics of poetry in Slavic languages, in addition to a terrific critic of Yeats and other poets who write in English, uh, is the translator of a uh, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong. I'm going to pronounce her first name wrong. Help. Vyslava. Vyslava. Thank you. Zaborska. Did you get the last name right? Of course not. I'm making progress. Uh, and the biographer of another uh, terrific poet who writes in Polish and another novelist, Czesław Miłosz. Did I get that semi-right? Okay, okay. I'm sensitive about my lack of, of Polish. Uh, she's also the author of um, she's also the author of lyric poetry and modern politics, Russia, Poland, and the West. One of the really uh, epical books, uh, not only of scholarship but of literary criticism and of thought about literature and culture for me over the last several years. I'm very glad that it is also a book uh, that won the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. Claire Cavanaugh also teaches at Northwestern University. I forgot to give institutional affiliations. And uh, James Wood is my colleague at Harvard. And Davina, are you teaching somewhere right now or you are not? Okay. Um, and Parole is at the New York Times Book Review. I've given you distinctions and credentials and reasons to read the work of all of the people who are to either side of me as well as institutional connections and I am going to get out of the way and ask the vaguest and largest of the questions I will be asking our panelists today. What is criticism for? <laughs> Vivian. <laughs> we do have other questions if you reject this one. I, I don't reject, I'm just dread. <laughs> um, what is criticism for? So, okay, Steve Byrne and I share a uh, great love of Randall Jarrell. And for me, Randall Jarrell is the model. Uh, so how do I look upon Jarrell? He is a man who is passionate about reading. For Jarrell, it's all one. Reading, writing, reading, uh, writing imaginatively, writing critically. It's all in the service of a love of reading, uh, which for Jarrell, is what makes life worth reading, worth living. And in fact, he said that um, mental life, intellectual life is the only thing that separates us from the animals. It's the only thing that, 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 is, that makes life uh, worth living. And I'm, I think I more or less agree with that. For myself, I can only say, when I started to write, like everybody else of my generation, when you, wanted, you thought you wanted to write, you immediately thought you were going to write a novel. Uh, so as I matured, I realized that my bent was essayistic. It wasn't imaginative in that other sense. And then I worked my way through understanding what essayistic means, which means that the writer, there's no surrogate for the, for the narrator, right? The narrator is the writer. Uh, but what does that mean? It means that you use yourself, your naked, unsurrogated self, to explore the world. Uh, to, so you are the instrument of illumination. You are not the subject, you are what will um, illuminate whatever it is you're looking at. The goodness of it all depends upon your perceptions, nothing else. It doesn't depend on technical apparatus, it doesn't depend on, um, on you know, many other ways of seeing. It doesn't depend on aesthetics, it doesn't depend on moralizing. It depends on the quality of your, of your perceptions. For me, when I began to write about books and writing, it was just an extension for me, of writing essays or writing memoirs. The agenda was different, and therefore the focus was different, the point of view was different, but essentially it came to the same thing. I write about how life feels to me. Uh, that's, that's in the end, I think every great critic has said this. I was, of course, trying to prepare a little bit for this, I found myself reading about criticism. <laughs> and in the course of it came across some great quotes from people like I.A. Richards, from Baudelaire, from, and they were all saying the same thing. In the end, you have only yourself and only your own perceptions. And if those perceptions, as Gerald said, make you love reading more, then and you've won the game. I, I, I feel when I'm writing at my best, I'm writing to say something. I certainly am I'm not writing aesthetically. I have none of that apparatus at my uh, fingertips, uh, any other part of me. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm, maybe I belong among the moralists. I don't know. All I do know is I don't feel I have the right to write unless I really have something to say which will illuminate the way in which life feels to the writer and the way that in turn felt to me. When I'm writing badly, um, 
I, when I was much younger, I used to do this a great deal. I used to write in order to um, announce my judgment of something. This is good, this is bad. Mostly I love saying this is bad. Uh, and learned to do it quite, quite well, quite cruelly. <laughs> um, in fact, I wrote so cruelly once that a writer called the New York Times and threatened to sue. And uh, Abe Rosenthal, who was then <laughs> the head of the Times, called me up to say, kid, when she sues, don't worry, I'll be right behind you. And behind me is what he meant. <laughs> so it, the whole thing was a shock, because I thought, I didn't think. And it took me many, many years to realize that was not criticism. I'll let it go with that one. I think I'm gonna cheat slightly, and so, Many years ago, I interviewed Steve and asked him the same question, and I'm going to tell him what you said. It was a long time ago. It's a different life. Um, and, and Steve, actually, it was really you answered it really well. You were like, well, poet, uh, criticism, like poetry can be an art. Like a chair, it has uses, and like voting, it's an individual way to participate in a necessary collective enterprise. And I. Criticism. You said this. That's smart. Or criticism. Yeah, and I just thought that for years, like I just, I just think that's like one of the better definitions of what criticism can do, and what it's for, and what it feels like to write criticism when you're trying to do so many different things at one time. Um, and I think for me, what criticism is for, the way I've read it, the way I try to write it, it's about um, much of what Vivian was saying. It's a way of clarifying perceptions. Uh, it's, it's a way, I think so many of us have such a thirst for reading, it's sometimes we want to read about reading, we want to understand the way our mind works when we're reading something, so we read somebody else. And it becomes this fantastic way when you're trying to write criticism, you learn about your own, at least I'm always coming up against my own myopias and my short-sightedness and my smugness and my uh, self-loathing apparently. But it's, 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 I don't know, I mean, and I, actually I love that you brought up Gerald too because I was reading him this morning, actually, and trying to think of intelligent things to say. And when he died, after he died, Robert Lowell wrote this beautiful tribute for him. And I just wanted to say one thing, because I just think that this, it just answers it better. He goes, one could never say of his admiration, oh, I know you would like that. His progress was not a youthful critic's progress from callous severity to lax benevolence. With wrinkled brow and cool, fresh eye, he was forever musing, discerning, and chipping away at his own misperceptions. Um, yeah, so I think for me, criticism is at least a huge process of just even self-intellectual revigoration. Yeah. I'm resisting the temptation to quote your Robert Lowell sonnets about Jarrell that continue those, <laughs> those matters. Uh, I, but I have to thank you for quoting him and me before moving on to James, while promising you that I will get to what Carl has written about James, but not yet. Um, I, I, I'm not going to detain you because I can't really improve on those two beautiful answers, um, except maybe to say, um, well, maybe to say that, that uh, I'm exaggerating a bit here, but you understand why, um, that we don't need to think necessarily of criticism as being for anything any more than we think of art as being for. It exists. It exists because it's a branch of being alive, and we're all critics. Um, a great deal of art is criticism, too, in one form or another. So um, it is, and uh, magnificently it is. Oh my gosh. I'm exaggerating a bit. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I have a really different trajectory into criticism, I think, than anybody else at the table, which is why I put my quotes here. This is kind of like a, a critical autobiography in reverse, in a way, I guess. I was trained in Slavic, um, and you know, people say, is that a country? Do you speak Slavic? Um, and, but I was trained across the river, wherever it is, at Harvard in high um, structuralist mode with Roman Jakobson, the famous structuralist and polymath kind of as a precise, he couldn't even speak anymore, but they would wheel him into the lectures and his, his wife would say, if he could talk, this is what he would say. <laughs> um, and so 
So I got late Jakobson out of my mind because it was really a combination of, of old-fashioned German philology and, and Jakobson, Jakobson, Jakobson. And um, I had to do it, and I, I guess I'm not sorry, um, but I hated it. And one reason I hated it is because it is the most profound. Structuralism generally, I think, and Jakobson in specific, is training in how not to be a critic. It's training, the little quote you have down at the bottom, I, I could have picked so many of them. Um, it's, to my mind, it's exactly what not to do. It's creating an academic language that's only, a dialect of an academic language that only speaks to other practitioners of that dialect. And that makes you feel insecure if you're not in with the in crowd. And I think that's the story of academia in, in literary studies of academia in, in recent decades. Um, I hate those languages. I really hate them. And I don't understand why anybody wants to say things like a superimposed on contiguity and hence equivalence is promoted to the constituent device of the sequence. And this is, he started out talking about Yeats in this thing. He has another, <laughs> um, he has another famous thing he did with Claude Lévi-Strauss on Baudelaire. Um, and what, what, it always seemed to me like if, if how the computer from 2001 could do scholarship, that's what that piece would be. They're unreadable and they're intentionally unreadable. Um, well, part of my trajectory then was backwards because what I discovered was that Jakobsen of the 20s, the teens and the 20s, was absolutely one of my favorite critics on the planet. And that kind of defined for me what criticism was. I gave a long quote here mainly because I wish I could quote the whole essay. It's a beautiful essay from 1931 that Jakobsen wrote after the death of his dear friend, the great poet Vladimir Mayakovsky. Um, and what he's trying to do is write to so many audiences in this beautiful piece. He's already in exile in Prague. Formalism has been officially forbidden in the Soviet Union, can no longer be practiced. And the other thing that got killed with formalism, this is people talk about the Soviet Union killing poets, what I was really, or killing poetry, which is true. Poetry as the kind of living, fighting, aggressive, antagonistic life force vanished. What you had was individual poets writing in isolation. And, but one of the other things these poets were missing, this, this only struck me um, much later, I, I read, I, I wrote a whole chapter in my book on, on Anak Matva's great, never finished work, The Poem Without a Hero. Um, and I spent years and years and years thinking about this poem. She wrote it, she started in 1940 and had like about four variants more perhaps. By the time she died in 1966, she wouldn't finish it. But a lot of what she did was include critical responses to it. Well, a lot of them were made up. She missed critics, she wanted critics. What the Soviets had were fixed interpretations that would be propagated by the state. Um, the interpretation was the job of the state, so that if you read a Soviet critic, there's some that managed to sneak ideas through the cracks. She missed this live interaction that Jakobsen precisely provides here, that the audience, readers, and poets, and critics were all woven in together into what Oesen um, Mandelstam calls one long family argument. They're arguing with each other and against each other and writing prose about each other and writing poetry about each other and then having affairs with each other, which makes it even more fun. Um, Sertayeva has a wonderful essay about how she told Mandelstam he would find a nice girl someday. Um, but that kind of intense engagement where they're working back and forth across each other, contradicting one another, growing as they read one another, finding all sorts of segues and intersections, Akhmatova never got over it. And a big part of the poem Without a Hero, I only realized it afterwards. If she's modeling herself partly on Byron, and Byron has all these wonderful footnotes attacking the critics, she had to invent critical responses to respond to. Uh, and then she had to build it into the poem. I'll stop here, yeah. No, no, well, well, this, will, this will continue, okay. but it will have other questions yeah, mixed yeah, in. Sorry, sorry. I wish I were, had a, 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 it's not okay to write on the walls of the convention center, is it? <laughs> no, I think it would get us in trouble. I want to be writing down a reading list instead of names. We'll have reading lists for you afterwards. Um, we're starting to speak about criticism as if it were one thing because it has been such a continuous important enterprise for so many critics. And as we get examples, we're breaking it down and seeing how it's affected by its occasion, by whether it is also biographical or also a book review with a judgment incorporated by length, 
by audience, by whether you will go to prison if you write the wrong thing, or whether you will not, uh, whether you will get paid, or whether no one is paying you, or whether you're being paid indirectly. So I was hoping that you could talk, and we could do it kind of Bustrophedon, starting with Claire and moving back to Vivian, uh, could speak about important kinds or genres of criticism and how those kinds or occasions or genres of criticism change what you can write or make possible what you can write. And talk about yourselves as critics, too. Kinds. The book review, the biographical essay, the book-length study, the memoir of one's own reading, um, the academic address, the genres of criticism, if you think it has genres. This one, I, this shtick I had already kind of in my head, that shtick I didn't <laughs> Some genres of criticism I, I don't practice, because I'm, I'm a translator slash academic slash critic. I always wanted to be a critic, so now I feel totally vindicated, because um, I'm actually here. Um, but the, to me, I can't, I can't do the thing like memoirs of my own reading and stuff. I suppose it's one reason why I'm a translator too, is I'm much more comfortable talking about other people, you know, in my writing. So there, there are whole genres that I kind of just don't do. I, I, I hate, I don't mind talking about myself, but not too much, but um, I hate writing about myself. Um, book reviews, I feel really comfortable with because I'm bringing, especially because I do so many on Slavic poets and I feel like I have this weird double perspective that's incredibly helpful. I write book reviews in, for Polish journals too because they have no sense of how writers perceive their poets stateside and they also completely miss things like with Miłosz. I'm, I'm, Susie, this is, this is for genres of criticism. Susie Linfield, who was a finalist the year that I got the prize, who wrote a wonderful book, said, um, criticism for her begins in irritation. And that's, that's true for me. All of the genres start in irritation. He says, how could such and such not get this? How could, such, how could somebody think this is a, a great book? You know, it's really fun sometimes to, or this is a, a good poet, or this is decent criticism. Um, and finding different ways to get pissed off nicely and actually turn it into a learning experience, I feel like that's part of the mode for me. And when in Poland, they don't realize that Miłosz spent 40 years in California, uh, where I happen to have grown up. They don't, they, they said, but, but isn't America just the air-conditioned nightmare for, for Miłosz? They missed his whole engagement with American poetry, so that's kind of, Trying to find the ways to counteract misreading? I don't know. It's not really a genre. Whatever. James. I, I like, really like the idea of getting nicely pissed off. You're pissed off nicely, that's, that seems great. Um, it is hard to talk about genres of criticism, isn't it? Uh, and I suppose one ends up talking a little bit about one, what one does personally. Um, I, I, I like long, I like writing and have the privilege of being able to write, generally, uh, longish book reviews that I hope um, in some way speak through a work of art and not just about it. Um, and that's something that's important to me and that I feel um, I got when I was, you know, sort of a teenager reading people like Virginia Woolf, I could see, or, 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 or indeed, as a teenager when I discovered criticism, and, and really loved reading essays, you know, I'd read essays in bed and so on. I think instinctively what I was um, coming upon was the fact that there is, exactly as Clara's been saying, of course, a long critical tradition uh, which makes academic study very much a Johnny-come-lately, right? I mean, English studies as a, as a, as a discipline comes about around 1910, 1920, before that you went to university and you studied classical literature, not modern literature. Um, and criticism, of course, has existed for centuries before the academics got to it, because it was written by writers. Wordsworth and Coleridge, and Hazlitt, and Virginia Woolf, and so on. And I think instinctively, when I was a teenager, teenager I could, I would, that's what I was latching on to, that, that, that there was this that there was this writing about writing that was written in the same language, often by the same people. Right? By creative 
uh, artists. Um, and so, it, uh, certainly my own reviews, I try, I, I know it sounds silly, but I try to speak an artistic language, a writerly language if I can, as much as possible. And I completely understand what Claire is saying about Akhmatova needing, missing critics, wanting a, a, a critic. In fact, it made me think about, there's a, um, you know, George Steiner wrote that thing about 20 years ago in which he said this sort of, slightly Jarrell-like actually, he said there's far too much criticism, there's endless commentary, if we put all the books of commentary in a, in a he was like doing this, in a, in, a, in, a, in a line from here to, the, you know, stretch all the way to the moon, blah, 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 we need to get back to a world in which, you know, artists are just commenting on each other through their art. And Jeff Dyer wrote a wonderful thing in The Guardian where he said, Professor Steiner has described the world of jazz. Right? No commentary, very little commentary between jazz musicians, right? And the commentary is intramural. Um, and there's something, you know, so that, that seems an ideal to me, even as it's preposterous. It isn't an ideal. I mean, it's an ideal, but you're breaking the ideal every time because, you know, you are actually producing commentary. You are actually adding to the great line of books that goes all the way to the moon. But so be it. We're all, we're all producing commentary the whole time. Yeah, I think you actually have to say, uh, National Book Critics Circle Award winner, Jeff Dyer. <laughs> um, Harold, how does the kind and occasion of the piece you are writing, including word count and audience, affect what you are able to say as a critic? I mean, so I, I tend to work. I, I tend to write book reviews. I tend to work in that narrow little plot. And um, I really like being in that narrow little plot. And the more you do it, and it sort of starts feeling like when I was learning piano, like in a tune, you keep practicing the variations, you get strong on, on different aspects of it. But I think the brevity of it, and I think the fact that you are writing, generally, if you're writing, for example, for the book review, you are thinking about the reader, you are commenting on a book in a newsy kind of way, you want it to feel relevant. You're not necessarily talking about critical standards, you're really talking about what's in the book. You know, what is the book saying it's going to do? Is it doing it? Um, I think for me, it, it's, it's everything, you know? I think, as, as, as a critic, you're always thinking of who's reading this, who's consuming this. Um, but other than that, I don't know if it, if the challenges are different for any other kind of prose, any other, you know, any other kind of writing. I don't even think, in terms of genre, like, it, it really changes what it feels like to produce it. I think it's, you know, we're all, like, stuck in that Ann Carson mode of, like, you know, one can never know enough, one can never work enough, one can never use the infinitives and participles oddly enough. Whatever your length, whoever you're writing to. I'm trying to think of, of what it would be like to be stuck in an Ann Carson mode. Yeah. <laughs> Which of her books? Um, first, I want to say that what Claire said about Akhmatova uh, and uh, missing the critics is deeply moving. Um, and and it, it's, it's from the world, it's the kind of world in which she lived, in which people like her and, and uh, well, people like her, they all gathered together in a tight little world against a large world that was telling them they couldn't live, that they, they were not wanted. And therefore, they came to appreciate each other with an intensity that only that kind of world threat really produces. Living in the world that we live in, the most privileged uh, in, hi in history probably, um, we deal with uh, a huge amount of separateness. <laughs> uh, we don't appreciate each other. Um, the, the way, and I feel like I work in isolation, I really do. I never, I don't have a job, I don't um, have a particular audience to write for, and I, and I guess I never have. Uh, so I, I was always, I worked for the Village Voice, that's how I became a writer. I mean, I've always uh, considered myself uh, something of, of an outsider um, <laughs> in the formal world of letters and of newspapers. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. I'll tell you about a piece I just wrote not too long ago, which really um, just about summarizes the way I work. Um, 30 years ago, more, a little bit more, about 30 odd years ago, I went to Israel. Uh, I was sent by a publisher and I was going to write a book about it. But I found myself with no affection for the country. And I came back and my mother begged me not to write this book. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't write the book because I knew that to write without any kind of affection was death would be literary suicide. You could criticize all you want if you had some affection, but I didn't. 
So I put it all away, I had 100 pages of notes, and I met marvelous people, there were marvelous circumstances, marvelous landscape, marvelous this and that, but I didn't, I didn't feel, it was 100 pages of yes, but. And I put it away. Last year I went to, to Israel for a week in the summer for the first time in all these years, and uh, was uh, sort of surprised or shocked enough by what I actually experienced there to go back to those notes and see the way I experienced the country full strength uh, 35 years ago, which was all negative, as I say. And at that time, I wrote in my notes, I had read the early stories of A.B. Yeshua, and had been surprised by those stories as against what I was seeing on the ground. And what did I mean by that? I went back to the notes, I went back to Yeshua's stories. I reread them all, and then I put together a piece, which, if this is not immodest, will be in the nation at the end of this month. Please, please read their forthcoming work. Anyway, the, the thing is this. I disliked the culture that I found on the ground. When I read Yehoshua, I saw another culture. I saw another set of feelings. I saw what I could never have seen in that rough, bullying public culture of Israel's. I saw existential loneliness as I could not see there. What I did in this piece was to put the two together and then bring it up to date. This is how it felt then. This is what I read. This is what I read now. This is what I saw now. That, for me, is the best way of criticizing. And I wrote a huge amount about Yeshua's stories in this piece to bring back to life what he himself cannot feel anymore, by the way. What he writes now is at such a distance from what he wrote then, which is the work, luminous work, of a very young a man in his 40s who felt profoundly what a writer like David Grossman has now taken up that gauntlet. It's David Grossman who now gives you the sense and he's nowhere near as good as Yeshua. It was really profound. I mean, those stories were just, just marvelous. Now, by the same token, the two books that I was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award for, one was called The End of the Novel of Love and the other The Men in My Life. They're both collections of stories, of, of um, pieces of criticism that are organized in exactly the same way. The End of the Novel of Love is a book that arose out of the realization that I had over many, many years of reading that you couldn't write a great novel anymore with romantic love at the center. You just couldn't do it. We had too much experience and there was no way. Now I wrote this in many ways without knowing what I was writing until an editor put them together and then made me write the lead, the lead piece, the title piece, the end of the novel of love, which pulled it all together. And it's the same with the men in my life. So that's how I wrote it. Yeah. Um, the Israeli Hebrew language writer uh, who Vivian is saying we should, whose stories Vivian is saying we should all go read, I want to be sure this name is spelled correctly because it's counterintuitive. Um, it's A B A A B Y E H O S H U A is the way it's normally transliterated from Hebrew into English. The stories you're recommending is that is that right? Okay. Um, we will spell Akhmatava and Spataiva for you uh, after we get to the end. We can ask when we're all done. Um, great transition into a question I wanted to ask uh, all of you, which is about the reception of criticism and the place of the critic in other countries, in Britain, in Ireland, in South Asia, in Poland, and uh, Poland's neighbors, uh, as well as in Israel. All of you know something about the place of critics and criticism in some countries that are not the United States. Would any of you like to speak about it? Okay. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to see, um, first of all, like you don't, I was just thinking um, when you were talking about critics together and, and sort of the work that does, I, I, you must be familiar with the critic Pankaj Mishra, who got his start when he discovered in this tiny town, this little village that he lived in, the work of V.S. Pritchett. Um, and that was his great ingress into Western literature. So we don't really know who our reader ever is and what we're doing. Um, in terms of, of just realizing how important criticism is for literary culture, I look at India right now, which has so many readers, so many writers, and trying, like in the nascent stages of like, 
I mean, it's, it's both like incredibly active and it's both very, very decentralized. So you see a lot of really, really interesting criticism and important criticism happening in blogs, happening in places that you don't really, um, you know, odd like little corners of the internet. Um, Nilanjana Roy is a fabulous Indian critic. Uh, she does a lot of stuff, but it's, it's really like, you really, one realizes the infrastructure of magazines, newspapers, book sections in a country that doesn't have that and has so many readers. And especially Indian readers who love to argue, love to fight, love to rank, you know. We have all kinds of caste systems and we want to fight them. And it's just hard. We can't find ways to do it. But I mean, it's, it's always a heartening thing whenever I go online or go back and see the work that's being done and see the energy and seeing it actually like in the absence of that, how voraciously they read the work, how voraciously they read The New Yorker, you know. They're always up on the name, like the new James Wood before I am. And, you know, so it's... Yes. Um, obviously, I know the, the British uh, context um, fairly well. Uh, I started out there uh, just after university as a freelancing, and then um, worked for a while actually on the pages of the of the Guardian newspapers, books pages until I was about thirty. Um, and I keep up with that world a bit, um, and many of you will will know it too uh, that it's um, fairly pugilistic, um, which I quite like. Um, uh, it has, there are still lots of newspapers, although the, the space for reviewing in Britain has uh, contracted. Um, where it, the strength that American reviewing has at the moment is, is in um, long-form magazine journalism, um, which also has a spillover, I think, on, onto blogs, where you get now, you know, LA Review of Books and this sort of thing, long essays. That's still a real lack, I think, in, in British journalism, which tends to be short and scrappy. Um, you know, 800 words, 900 words, Spectator, Guardian, that kind of thing. Um, and even the TLS, you know, it's not long pieces. The, the one exception is the London Review of Books, and um, I'm sure many of you, like me, read that journal with great pleasure and, and enjoy the long uh, pieces in, in that journal. Um, but I do think that we're fortunate um, in America still to have this tradition of small magazines like The Nation and The New Republic, um, The Atlantic though for how much longer, um, Harper's again for how much longer. Um, you know, there's a, if it, three or four years ago I'd perhaps been a bit more optimistic and now there's a, there's a, there's a, there's the smell of uh, contraction and menace in the air. Place of criticism in other countries that you are. Well, with with Russia, as far as I can tell, and I hope I'm wrong, uh, it never completely recuperated from Stalin's really elimination of the whole concept of criticism. There was this: either you could be quasi-empirical, which is what Jakobsen is doing here, is count syllables or do exact biographical data. Or there was a genre, there's a great Russian word um, I love. I, I don't have a good translation for it. Which I kind of think of as self-involved blather. Uh, <laughs> and nothing in between. And I, I, it, it handicapped my whole field. Um, I, I've always gone to the Anglo-American tradition to, to find models for scholar critics and for poet critics who are publishing their work and so forth. That's what I've always used. Um, so Russia, I think, was really handicapped by that. It's another reason why I just value criticism so much. I know what it looks like when it's not there. Um, in Poland, it's a different matter. It's, there's a very much, they had a very brief Stalinist mode, and the, the criticism never got killed out, and the idea of lively engagement and factions and different modes and constant argument um, is still very much alive there, um, and they're much more vicious than, than we are. Um, Michael Hoffman wrote a review of a new translation of Zbigniew Hedberg a few years back, and I remember Polish friends saying, oh my god, it's like he wrote it in Poland. <laughs> you know, it's when you, when you really do that kind of job, that's, and people take it incredibly personally, you know, that somebody did a negative translation of somebody's translations of James Merrill, and they're no longer on speaking terms. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's very lively and engaged, but there's also the undercurrent of animosity. I'm always very glad that I can 
back off of it and get out of there. Um, and also that I don't have a Polish last name, I get exempted from all of it. <laughs> I, I think I remember that Michael Hoffman piece. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the translator he was trying to run out of town was a, someone whose own poetry I liked. I was shocked. It was, it was appalling. Yeah. Yeah, it was appalling. He, he, had, he had strong feelings. Um, <laughs> Harold, when you reviewed James's latest collection, uh, you indicated that in your view, he was moving away from criticism with an argument, in particular arguments about literary realism, which James has worked for so long, uh, towards more impressionistic or appreciative models for what he was doing as a critic. Uh, is that true? And if not, uh, what should we believe instead about where your work is going? And my punishment will be what? <laughs> there is no punishment. You will be reviewed by Michael Hoffman. <laughs> See, you have to you, you have to tell me who 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 are you asking? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, is it true that no, I'm done teasing. Um, I I very much like what. Parallel wrote, um, and I think she was onto something. Um, and I've been enjoying in the last uh, few years um, writing not just book reviews, but uh, different kinds of pieces, uh, more personal pieces. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think they rise to the level of, of or the title of cultural criticism exactly, but um, I guess they 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 just reach that level that it's sort of annoying rather fey thing that the New Yorker does where it goes, the writing life or the personal life, which I really hate, but I guess that's where they belong. Um, but, you know, it's a start. What about writers whose view of the world, James, you've written about, actually, you, you've all written about this in different ways, what about writers whose view of the world you find unsympathetic? Writers where you read the book and you say, I don't want to meet that person ever. Uh, they're wrong about something big. Yeah. How hard is it to do the writing justice when you, there's something else about the writing you want to say? Uh, that's a sore point right this minute. Uh, I just did something that I swore I, I wouldn't do again, which is to write about a book that I didn't like. Exactly what you've just described. Um, and it's a pro review. it was a review, and I promised myself I'd never do this again, but I did do it. <laughs> My friend Gail. Uh, it's about James Salter, uh, James Salter's new book. And the thing, actually, that I had to say was that Salter, at 87, is writing as he did at 42. <laughs> I mean, there, I, there was, it's a long life. It's a respect, very respectable life. It's a life in which he can praise to the skies for 40 years for his style, for the lushness of his style. I don't know if, how many of you know his work, but he's been praised by the famous and the infamous and the obscure forever. And I never really read much of him, and now this new book of his has come out, and it shocked, and I was asked to review it, and I agreed to do it before I actually read it, and then I read it and I thought, you should back out of this. And then I didn't back out of it, and then I had the hardest time in the world um, say, but I thought it was worth saying that it was not worthy of a writer who is as good as he is to not have um, pushed himself harder to, uh, to, every writer has only one story. I mean, Flannery O'Connor said, you, you can write about anything you want, but there's only one thing you can really make come alive. And I believe that, I think it's true. And we write pretty much out of the same understandings, which doesn't change, don't change that much, but should enlarge, they should develop, they should, uh, they should change, they should surprise, they should do something, otherwise it's repetition. And so I, I, I comforted myself by saying um, it's worth calling to the reader's attention that it is the writer's obligation to grow with the work, to change, to not tell the same story over and over and over again in the same way, but to tell it different ways. So, that was... <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. That's, that's great. No, um, I think yeah, for me that it's 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 very difficult. Like that's the work, especially. I don't know if I'm somebody who trusts my instincts generally. So when I don't like something, I have to ask myself very carefully again: Is it because it's new? Is it because it's challenging my cherished premises? 
Um, is it because I don't understand it? Is it making me feel stupid? Is it making me feel small? Um, and I think that back and forth becomes really, really interesting. And then once you're ready, like once I'm like, you know, a full mental spiritual audit is over, then, you know, when you're writing the piece, then it becomes very interesting. Like how do you, I mean, it's like Auden, right? Auden says that books come to us and they appeal to us and rebuff us the way people do. So how do you talk shit about a person, right? Like how do you, how do you criticize a book? How do you criticize a friend to another friend? Carefully, you know? How do you build your case? And you proceed by quotation, as Amos says. You marshal the evidence. You go and you try to be careful. Um, but yeah, I think that, that everything leading up to that moment when I'm sure and then I start to build the case is very uh, scary and important, I think, for me. Yeah, yeah. Coming back to the British reviewing context and the history of British reviewing brings us back to pugilistic or martial metaphors, which I think <laughs> I, just, I was just standing up to, to notice that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to sit down and ask Jameson and Claire to answer the same question. Um, well, I, I was thinking about Vivian, you know, Vivian's piece about James Sultan, and maybe thinking that you, I quite understand the anxiety, but maybe that you should be less anxious than you are. I mean, it, it, it's. Uh, well, there's the particular question of his age, which I think is difficult always. Uh, might be the last book he writes. Um, this might be one of the last reviews he ever reads. Um, uh, sorry, 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 I didn't Sorry. But, um, but uh, I'm just playing with messing with but, but as you described it, it's a, it's a, it's a perfectly right thing to do, um, particularly as I'm sure you weren't unkind. Um, and, well, maybe you think you're more unkind than others will. Uh, I mean, maybe you think you're unkind and he'll think you're unkind, but nobody else will. Remember, you know, it's, you're, you're writing it for readers, and, um, and they may well agree with you. They may well think, my God, you know, I've been waiting 20 years for someone to say that James Salter just repeats himself, and actually it's a rather limited body of work that people have made an enormous amount of fuss about. And finally someone said it. That's, you know, that's not a, a small thing. And I don't mean to be, you know, I'm not pick, picking on James Lott at all, but, yeah. but you know, you, 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 you negated the name of an ideal, as Chigenev said about Belinsky. You, it's worth, that there is an ideal, um, and that seems to me an admirable one. Um, but I totally understand what you and Pearl are saying about the, the slightly inhuman quality of it. Uh, which is, you, you, there's an honesty you can have on the page, and take it from me, I, I spent my teens being a huge liar because I grew up in a, a highly Christian environment and, and I had to, you know, it, including fiction, in order to, fiction was the realm of, the, of freedom, it was a place where I could get away and, and be with my own, realize that I could think my own thoughts. Um, so I grew up sort of knowing when I could tell the truth and when I had to lie, specifically to my parents. Um, writing, I still find confrontation and that precisely that kind of, you know, meeting someone and telling them what, what, what you think of them very hard. But, but writing is a zone of honesty that, that, you know, it is a little different from, from meeting someone at a party or, or you know, it, it's, it, there's something inhuman about it uh, as well as entirely human. Well, I, I'm thinking about a couple of things here. One is that it seems to me that both of you are so thoughtful and cautious about how you approach criticizing someone that I, it, that seems like the ideal to me in a way. But the other thing is that it, it, I think it's important, I'm thinking back to the 20s and the teens again in Russia, it's not, the, the review isn't a final word. It's setting up a, a conversation or an argument. And somebody else, I mean, I wrote a review of the Michael Hoffman thing, and then he wrote back a little snide thing after that. And of course, I was right, but, but that wasn't no, no, um, But that's part of keeping the argument going. I mean, that's when, when Mandelstam says that literary tradition is nothing but a prolonged family argument, yeah. that what you were doing is setting up, if somebody else wants to come, someone may be relieved and another person may be irritated and come back and say, you're wrong, this is what's happened new here. He's revisiting old territory, but not repeating, something like that, but you've set something in motion and it's keeping the work alive. But Steve's original question was, how do you deal with writing about something you don't like? Something, something you don't like. And you know, speaking of Auden, which Harold was, uh, Auden said famously, 
uh, and rightly, Gordon said, never write about bad art. It's not, not only is it not worth it, it's bad for your soul, and the stuff goes away anyway. It doesn't last, you know, it's true. And he, he said that, and I, I tried to take that to heart because I believe it's true, it's not. So that was what bothered me. On the other hand, there was a point buried in my dislike of the yeah. book that I felt was worth it. It's very complicated, it, it really is, it's very complicated. Um, how you, because it, 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 there are people at the, at the ends of, of all of these, uh, these books, and uh, who was there just said, I just read recently, um, somebody likes dealing with something because it can't hurt their feelings. I don't know, no, I'm, I'm losing it here. I, <laughs> it, was, it was about inanimate objects instead of writing about books with people attached to it. You can't, you can't hurt their feelings. Um, anyway, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it doesn't sound so, so bad, but I do think in general, it's not worth writing about stuff you don't like um, or, or stuff that you think is bad because it's uh, it's hard to extract from that. Going back to, to Gerald, who's our, 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 our favorite here, Gerald was passionately stern when he didn't like something, right? You know, um, and, and Orton, he, he trashed Orton in some early book and, and some, some early collection of his poems, trashed him left, right, and center. And Orton said, Oh, Randall is in love with me. <laughs> and he was right. He was right. They all understood each other. Randall was as passionate in, in his uh, dislikes. Again, all in the name of the, you know, the Holy Crusade, all in the name of upholding the joy of reading and the obligation that both reader and writer had to delivering that joy of reading. Um, so it was interesting. When he wrote negatively, if you were a good reader of his reviews, you didn't feel diminished. You didn't feel, oh, this is a piece of poison. This is getting us nowhere. This is just a writer writing back about another writer. Uh, not at all. Not at all. You felt the, you know, the, the banner was being held high for something worth holding high. Yeah. Um, I would love to do two more hours on Jarrell scholarship. <laughs> I've done it, but not for this more. He's great. You should read everything he wrote. And his sense of when and why it is worth writing a negative review, right. uh, and when it is worthwhile to be funny in a negative review really changed over the course of his life. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think the only way I can resist the temptation to try to create a two-hour discussion of Jarrell and Auden um, is to do what I promised to do an hour ago, which is to open the floor to questions from other people here while we have time. Let's take some audience questions. Um, I'm just gonna walk down the aisle and point to people and be loud. Does this move? Yes. So much for the I'm an Did everyone hear that? No. Uh, regional venues and regional audiences. Can you have a regional criticism, for example, in St. Louis? <laughs> no. No? No. Oh. I mean, okay. No, go ahead. You started. Okay. I don't know what regional means. I think <laughs> you, you need a, a, some level of um, sophisticated, of shared um, values, of shared sophistication. There is such a thing as provincialism and, uh, and, and, and the urban. And, well, I don't know what it means to, what small city in America has produced um, some nationally valuable, what, where? Where? <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't know if I'm going to answer your question, but I just feel like um, I don't know if I believe in regionalism, but for different reasons. Just because for me, like I mean, it's that same story with Bankaj Mishra, right? Like books and texts break that down. You know, so break down that idea of space, geography for me, race, ethnicity. Like I was, I, I came to criticism because I loved, 
you know, in a very, I loved Sontag back in the, you know, like, I, and just because she made ideas seem glamorous to me, you know? And I think that, yeah, if, if whatever you're doing, wherever you're doing it, like that's, and I think it's, it's never been. doing it in St. Louis. No, she wasn't, no, but I'm saying, but I was reading her in Delhi, you know? And in Chandigarh, which is like, yeah, but, no, no, but this idea of like, you know, I, I don't know, okay, so, instead of like Sontag say, you know, but like look at somebody like, for example, Pankaj Mishra coming out of this tiny village, you know? And I, I don't know if, if I agree that like certain cities produce better artists, but I definitely do believe that like if great criticism is coming out of St. Louis, whatever it's about, I think it'll find an audience and it'll find you know grateful readers like me. I also think that to say you can't have great regional criticism is like saying you can't have great regional art. Um, the two things intersect and change places constantly. I, I, I think it's true, and I think it, again regionalism is partly. Especially because in the world that we're living in now, regionalism, part of what I think the critic would be doing was translating the world for the region and translating the region for the world. You know, they, they give regional Tonys for theater. That's, a, that's an act of kind of engaging with a regional artistic community. It's an act of criticism. Um, so I don't see how you could not have that. I mean, I, I, this, is, this isn't a critic, it's a, it's a writer, but Faulkner was engaging with the entire European tradition out of a little tiny town. And if he hadn't have been in a little tiny town, his act of engagement would have been entirely different. And, and then it took southern critics to sort of recognize that capacity in Faulkner. So. I want to hear from James. No, I don't know. I'm more interested in the... Just, well, when, I, when I say this, no, we, we, we talk about regional criticism or regional writing, uh, that that has very little to do with the fact that writers and that, that people in the arts come from everywhere, from every conceivable background. But the we're not, we don't have a regional literature now in the, in the United States. And, and as soon as he could, he went to London. I mean, he didn't, he came out of that village. Of course, we all come out of everywhere. I came out of the Bronx. It was as, as good as any Indian village. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't wait to get to Manhattan. What are we talking about? <laughs> and when I wrote about the Bronx, it wasn't people in the Bronx who appreciated it right. who gave me a job. It was it was people of, of the larger ur, urbane urban urbane. I mean, the single the singleness of uh, shared. Uh, we don't have a regional, um, I don't know what you mean by regional criticism. People can write in St. Louis and they send their work to publications that are uh, read by people all over the country or the world. Um, and they are read by them because they all recognize each other. Then you enter another land. It's the land, right? James, help me out here. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, so the, the, the debate here, um, is where regionalism ends, right? And actually, I reckon if we had another half an hour, we, this side and this side and there would probably all agree, right, on where, right? I mean, that seems, that seems to be the debate. Where does, re at some point, regionalism does end, um, and it isn't regionalism anymore, right? I mean, I think you implied it in a way with the Faulkner thing, right? Yeah, yeah, but the Faulkner thing is, is, is Faulkner taught so many writers internationally right. to be regional, but I also think there's a point living in that rural village of Chicago. Um, I read Chicago critics all the time, and what, what I do is I see them I'm, for theater all the time. It's a great theatrical community, and it's in a weird way it's regional, because it's, it's like a repertory company, where you see the same actors and the same directors showing up here, there, and other places. Some of them go out, but they come back. That's and it's a specifically, hmm? That's not the equivalent of writing and and criticism. Well, no, it's, it's regional criticism. I'm reading drama criticism in a very specific area for a specific audience. Um, in a certain, it depends again on reading, but it, it wouldn't carry outside of Chicago. We need, we need one clarification, and then we're gonna attend to this region, which has another hand. Yeah, oh, we, we, I won't even ask for clarification. I will simply take another person in our audience who's had his hand up for a while. Uh, well, Bad art may not um, may go away, but certainly in the here and now, it obscures good art. 
So um, that's one reason I value you critics. Um, uh, my question, though, is I, I have to believe, that, uh, just from hearing you, that, that you have made um, enemies or lost even friends through your writing. And I would like to know if that has happened to you, if that the experience has strengthened or weakened your backbone. <laughs> I don't think I've, I've made any enemies, and not for my writing. <laughs> it's more personality, I think. Um, I owe a lot of money. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, I hope that it's not because I haven't taken a stand, but no, I, I, so I would say, I don't, no, I, I can't answer that one. Enemies? I don't know. We probably all make enemies. I don't. I don't move in a world where I'm aware of of, um, of the enemy. Every now and then, New York, you know, is. Every now and then, I I will walk into a room where somebody I have reviewed is actually there, and um, you know, if I. Please them, they're happy, and if I haven't, I have had the experience of having uh, somebody alarmingly, um, you know, confront me and say, you know, I hated everything you wrote, and I hate everything you write, and But generally, I'm not aware of this at all, and, I, and it certainly doesn't, um, it wouldn't strengthen or demoralize me one way or the other. I, uh, e either way, either lots of praise or lots of blame. Uh, I, it just, it doesn't, it really doesn't. It's, most writers, I think, are fighting with themselves so much that what's happening out there is, is uh, really can't compete with, uh, <laughs> with how much damage you can do to yourself at any hour of the day or night. <laughs> right, um, I really do believe that. Enemies, James, there. I'm certainly aware of having enemies, um, but, I think I agree with Vivian, I mean, so what really? Uh, I, I find actually the, the, the sort of crumbling of the backbone that you're talking about, uh, and I have a terrible back at the moment, um, but the, the crumbling that you're talking about, I find it happens more acutely when I publish a book and then I'm, as you understand, as I'm, I'm then myself reviewed, sometimes nicely, sometimes nastily, and at those times I think, my God, it's unpleasant. Yeah. being on the yeah. receiving end, and, it, and therefore it's really unpleasant to do it to other people. Um, unfortunately, that's a little bit like being sick. That's to say that you're, you know, when you're healthy, you forget how unpleasant it was to be ill. And <laughs> after a few months, weirdly, you forget that experience and you go back to the old ways. Well, for those of us who teach, we get reviewed on a regular basis by our students, and they're allowed to be anonymous, and it goes online. And you never forget the bad reviews, ever, ever. I, you know, I've had bad reviews about my outfits. I've had, you know, because they can write anything, and they go online. But I really like what Vivian said about the internal critic, because that's in a way what I've used as a therapy for whenever I feel like, who the hell am I to be writing about X? Who the hell am I? I just, if somebody else said that to me, you'd say something that I'm not going to say in public. So just externalizing my internal critic kind of creates a nice buffer zone for the rest of them. And yeah, so that's, yeah. Uh, one more question or two more questions, yeah. Yeah, um, the editor of the browser, which is sort of a, a British conglomerate website, they link to interesting articles. He recently said that um, publications or platforms no longer matter at all. Because of the internet, articles live on their own. They get passed and shared on social media and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was wondering to hear what you guys thought about that. Do, does the publication of the platform matter to you? How can you tell? You know, I have seen, I don't do the internet or anything. I'm really, <laughs> I mean, I do email and um, email. <laughs> and, uh, Google information. But I don't do I don't do any of this stuff. So um, I'm always amazed when it, when something is called to my attention that something of mine appeared on the internet. You know, somebody will send me something and say, "Look at this, blah blah blah," and it's something of mine that was written either a long time ago and is now being used uh, in a way that I never meant it to be used, or that I see that um, that is up there. I mean, that there are all kinds of stuff that I that I 
right that is uh, reproduced on the internet. And it's as unreal to me, <laughs> it's so totally unreal for me, it's such an abstraction. I mean, I'm certainly of a generation who, who I don't think can ever be anything but an abstraction, but it's it's like I'm, I'm reading something from Never Neverland that has no effect on me at all, and I can't tell what it, what it means out in the world. You know, can you feel the same way? No. Um, I think I feel it differently, but I think, um, I don't know if I agree with that, if, if only because like, if I click on a link on Twitter, it's generally because it's reached some sort of critical mass, you know, or like people are saying enough things about it. Whereas like the publications that I read regularly, LRB, Book Forum, all of these, you know, I have relationships with these magazines, with some of the, some of the columnists, some of the have regular critics. Um, I even have like an aesthetic relationship with the public, like, just the way it looks matters to me. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, that. James, does platform matter? Um, I think it, it obviously matters less and less, um, though I agree with Parallel that there are, you know, there are institutions that you're familiar with, fond of, that seem to have, and the LRB would be a good example, book forum, they have certain stables of writers uh, who've been writing for a long time, and to that extent, that's an institution then. But of course, since that can be replicated online, um, you could almost argue the opposite of the editor of the browser, that, that you know, the institutions still matter, they're just all over the place, there are just more of them. Um, I don't know, I, I sort of, I come and go on this, on, on this, on this issue, um, but I certainly do enjoy being able to, to read literary criticism in lots of different places, uh, both in, in print and online, and, and think of that as a, as a benefit of the last few years. I just, I basically, again, with you on this one, is I, I basically hate the internet because it gives me ADHD and, and um, I can't really read. I skim so I can get off fast. But one thing I do like in terms of venue is it's, it's democratized criticism so much um, and evaluation and responses in so many ways. And you can, with po if you're a poetry critic, it's wonderful because you get so many responses and people writing out poems from memory, which is an act of criticism because they make interesting mistakes or get that line breaks wrong or they create stanzas. But this is, this is a very personal um, example is I was asked to write something after after Wiesowna Szymborska died just about a year ago and I was asked to write something for a Polish journal and and I couldn't because I, I knew her really well and I really loved her and I just couldn't but what I did instead which was like one of the most wonderful experiences I ever had is I just went online to see what people wrote about her and they were so wonderful and some of it was criticism and some of it was extremely personal and some of it you know, how, how I discovered her, or when, who gave this book to me, or one woman said, if I'm th considering someone for a friend, I give them this poem, and if they don't like it, they're not my friend. Um, these, and in all sorts of venues, and you know, some of them were, were official publications, and some of them were people's private blogs, and some of them were for journals that had nothing to do with literature. Um, and that was, at, that was one time when I, I really loved the internet. It created, and people would be doing responses on each other's pages and writing out whole poems. And that was one time when I really loved the, the internet as a form of criticism. Yeah. Can we take one more question oh, or not really? Not really. We not really. Yeah. Thanks so much to the National Book Critics Circle. If you look at your seat, Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.